Let us pray. God whom we do not see, God in whom we trust our lives, guide our listening this morning, our listening to your word and to the stories of those who followed you long before us, and encourage our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit moving and breathing among us. We ask this through Christ. Amen. I have an invitation for you this morning that's a bit different um, than what I would normally say at the beginning of a sermon, but we're going to hear a lot of stories today, a lot of stories of the many who went before us. So I ask that as you're listening, that you would listen for one in particular that just shimmers or touches you in a particular way or seems to kind of pull you. Where is the word for you today in these stories? And then instead of a hymn of response, we will have a chance for some quiet, reflection at the end of the sermon to have a chance to digest a little bit before our time of anointing. If we're honest, most of us really like to know where we're going. I mean, I certainly do. I love Google Maps. Big fan. Actually, I love maps in general. You can get oriented, you know, you can you can Calculate the number of miles from here to there. Does anybody remember? I don't know if you ever did this, but I used to use the little lines on my knuckles before we had the actual, you know, before we had Google Maps to see what the, you know, the miles were. Because you can turn your finger and it actually, yeah, I see, I see nods. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not alone in that. But now, with all-knowing Google, you can actually see where the road curves, every little detail, and exactly where it turns into another road, and I love it. It feels so good, and it feels especially good in this new place. Every time I know where something is in relationship to the city, I kind of test it out with people. I'm like, oh, Conestoga, that's south, right? It just feels really comforting to know where you're going. And of course, it's also true that detailed maps are not particularly good tools for building trust. Aside, of course, aside from the utterly willing and grateful and at times blind faith that some of us put in our GPS devices. So it seems that rather than receiving maps and precise coordinates in our relationship with God. It seems like getting to a place of saying yes to the nudges and the wooing of the Spirit of God generally feels more like jumping off a cliff or into a frying pan. And I imagine it would have felt that way to Abraham and Moses as well. Now, we, we know that Moses protested very strongly. We get to listen in on his argument. Well, 
his protest uh, to, to God about his call. And he comes back several times, you'll remember, and says, just, would you please send someone else? And, and some of us can relate to that. But we don't really get to know about Abram. We don't know how long Abram might have considered or if he delayed, or what questions he asked God, or how many different types of fear and anger and resistance he might have gone through before he actually left and set out from home without a map. And throughout this passage in Hebrews, we see this dance between seeing and not seeing what is visible and what is invisible. And it seems that the spiritual and physical realms are woven together by threads of faith. This acting with some degree of confidence without knowing, without seeing. What is seen was made from things that are not visible. What does that mean? From what kinds of invisible things were the worlds made? Well, this author says words, the words of God. We have this hearkening back to Genesis where God makes everything simply by speaking. Or one could say that the world, that the universe was made from God's imagination just a vision of a beautiful and harmonious creation. And we have examples piled up here when what is seen gives testimony to what is not seen. Now, I don't just mean God's beauty and goodness that we see in creation and we say, well, surely there's a creator. But also that our ancestors in faith their lives and our lives of faith, lives that go on in flesh and bone in the day-to-day, are a kind of evidence of things unseen. Evidence that we have encountered the living God and chosen to trust and follow, to leave home and travel toward another homeland, although we have no idea where we're going. And so Abram and Sarai went, and their family lived as foreigners for a few generations in tents, living in this land with no clear indication of how God was intending to make good on this promise of countless descendants living in this land. They were seeking a homeland, the scripture says, But the writer of Hebrews gives us a twist on a literal understanding that they were just waiting to occupy the land. As they experienced a relationship with this God who was unpredictable and at the same time remarkably faithful, it turned out that they started to experience God as their home. It seems that the writer of Hebrews imagined imagines that Abraham accepted his identity as a wanderer and a foreigner, a sojourner in this land that was not his own. And who knows, maybe just out of necessity, 
decided to trust that God would have to work out the details of his legacy because he knew he wasn't going to see it. One scholar says that Abraham is notable because of his willingness to live as a stranger in the hope of a promised inheritance, which is not a geographical territory, for he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And Moses, too, in verse 27, which was not read, persevered as though he saw the one who is invisible. Moses also is acting without seeing. Now, Pharaoh's economic and military dominance was really visible and much more obvious than the strange voice that spoke out of the burning bush. But somehow Pharaoh did not command the same loyalty as the one who said, I have heard my people's cries and I have seen the suffering of my people. And even though Moses walked with God and accepted this huge task of leading this people who were not always particularly friendly to him, spent, he spent his years accompanying them through grumbling and learning to trust out in the wilderness and died there. And while these ancestors of the faith heard and followed God's call, when you take a moment to look at all of these folks who are listed in this passage, when you look at their lives, there's not really much room for idealizing them. There's a lot of checkered history among these people. A lot. And still, they're listed among witnesses that should encourage us in running the race set before us. And of course, it should encourage us that these people knew intimately and painfully the weight that we carry as human beings and the sin that clings so closely, the sin that easily entangles. For example, we have Jephthah, who, as you might remember, recklessly promises to sacrifice as a burnt offering the first person he sees coming out of his house to greet him when he returns from battle, which, as it turns out, ends up being his daughter and his only child. This, in addition to his great victory in battle, leaves him as sort of in kind of a precarious relationship with us, especially as Mennonites. This, that's found in Judges 11, if anyone is interested in that story. It's actually kind of a fascinating tale. And of course, you'll remember David's most memorable sin of adultery, which that's really the nicest way to put it. It's most likely a less than consensual coupling with Bathsheba, which of course later is the reason for his ordering of the death of her husband Uriah. That's Second Samuel 11. And of course, like most of the people listed here by name, he was also a great warrior. It's a little bit awkward for us. And then there's Samson. I really, I don't know where I would start with Samson. <laughs> and truly, time is too short to enumerate his unchecked passions and 
He's another awkward ancestor with his acts of mass killing. That's Judges 13 through 16. Now, Rahab in verse 31 here is is an interesting one. Again, it's really too much to unpack, but a few questions. Why were the spies that Joshua sent at her house to begin with? Now, I just noticed that we usually don't ask that question when we reflect on this passage. Just noting that. Did the spies, now, okay, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Did the spies actually think that this was somehow the safest place for them? And if so, why would they have thought that? In this story in Joshua 2, it seems clear that Rahab believes that Yahweh is the true creator and will be giving Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And that is her motivation for protecting the spies. So that she can bargain for her family for her life and her family's life. But when they arrived that night, they couldn't have known that she trusted in Yahweh. Clearly, a very complex and question-raising narrative. And yet, for all this, the scripture says, the world was not worthy of them. This is an interesting combination, these lives that we wouldn't particularly want to imitate in several significant ways, we wouldn't want to imitate them, and also their place in this litany of faith being offered to us as witnesses. But when we stop and think about that, this is actually pretty typical of the good news of Jesus and of God's ways with us, right? God... (laughs) is constantly tapping ordinary and unremarkable and deeply conflicted people to be the bearers of God's transforming work, to participate in God's long, slow work of redeeming all things. These people we sometimes call heroes of the faith, these people of whom the world was not worthy, were people with deep fears and lusts, and even hatred for their enemies. And yet, many of them endured great loss, betrayal, and all kinds of suffering, both physical and psychological, in the process of trusting their lives to God. And now, the thing that amazes me every time when I read this passage is verse 40. After detailing all of the struggle and trouble and affliction that the forerunners in the faith endured, being sawn into, torture, wandering around in animal skins, etc., the writer says that even after all that, they will not be made perfect or complete without us. Wow. To me, this is, this is the mind-blowing mercy of God. The mind-blowing patience of God, leaving history open-ended to gather more and more into this divine city where all can be at home and no longer will anyone have to live as a stranger 
So no wonder we speak of endurance, persisting in the unknowing and trusting while not seeing. And the litany goes on of people who were as flawed and uncertain as we are, who took great risks in trusting God, who, like us, look and long for the city of God, for the homeland where all is reconciled. By faith, George Blaurock asked Conrad Grable to baptize him in the home of Felix Mons, defying the law of their city. By faith, Anakin Hendricks, an ordinary woman who could neither read nor write, refused to give up the names of other Mennonites when she was tortured in an Amsterdam prison. By faith, Dirk Willems turned back on the icy river to rescue the man who would recapture him and lead him to his death. By faith, Ida Ford and Maura Clark, Mary Knoll sisters, along with Dorothy Cazell and Ursuline Nunn, and a young laywoman, Jean Donovan, lived and worked in El Salvador as friends of vulnerable people, choosing to stay and accompany their neighbors through dangerous times during the Civil War, and to witness to their hope in the resurrection. They died there in 1980, brutally killed by a U.S.-trained death squad. Their nation was not worthy of them. And by faith, you too have set out on many steep paths and on painful journeys in your lives, though in many ways not knowing where you were going. By faith, Becky Hur, having endured between the ages of 12 and 14 the untimely deaths of both parents, heard the call of God who, she marveled, had called her a beloved daughter. And by faith, she received her brother's encouragement to study and completed her GED and nurse's training in the mid-50s and set out for Honduras, though she did not know what lay before her. By faith, she returned and went to college and seminary at a time when that was somewhat unusual. And in trust, she brought many of the people of this congregation to God in prayer. By faith, Duane Shank refused to register for selective service during the Vietnam War and was called out of a test in Eastern Mennonite College and left the test unfinished as he was taken into custody by the FBI. Just before the weekend, he realized he needed to pay $700 to his attorney. He didn't have $700 and made plans to borrow it on Monday morning. But word got around and his parents, Luke and Anna's small group, came up with the funds and covered the fee sent here from here at East Chestnut which surprised Duane, who didn't know they shared his convictions and were willing to take a stand against the, the war. 
By faith, Sharon and Barry continue to affirm that God is with them in their ordeal. By faith, Sheldon. By faith, Jonathan. By faith, Diane. Brothers and sisters, time fails me to tell of all the saints who have endured in faith and of all of your courage and of all the ways your faith has encouraged my own. Let us continue together to remember the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us and let us help each other to look to Jesus who chose to go first to blaze a path for us through the shadows of death and through the dry and unmapped wilderness. Let us continue to trust as Jesus trusted, laying down the weight of our burdens, becoming disentangled from our guilt and honest about our need. Consider these very human saints and the human one who was not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers, and do not lose heart. Let us be willing to hear the call of our God and to set out though we do not know where we are going.